Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And this week, we return to our roots with a little bit of music analysis. A little bit different from our last episode shenanigans. (laughs) We'll be looking at the impromptu in E-flat by Franz Schubert, a lovely little piece. Now, we have done a bio on Schubert in the past, but it's way back in episode 85. And you certainly can go back and listen to that episode as well, but we will rehash Schubert's bio here in this episode, so you won't miss any of the details. So, let's get to it! Franz Schubert was born in Himmelpfortland, Austria, in 1797. Like Beethoven was, Franz Schubert was an example of a classical to romantic bridge composer. He loved the classical style music of Haydn, but he also idolized the newer techniques and experiments of Beethoven. Schubert himself really worked more in the romantic style as we see it today, so is often more simplistically categorized as a romantic composer. Schubert's first teachers were his family members, his father and brother specifically. However, Schubert unexpectedly excelled far beyond their skills very quickly, so outside lessons were then found for him. By the time he was 10 years old, he was highly skilled at the piano, organ, violin, and viola, and he was also a highly gifted singer. As a young child, with a sweet and bird-like voice, he joined the Imperial Court Chapel Choir in Vienna, where Salieri, who was Mozart's hypothetical arch-nemesis, was currently teaching. Now, Salieri saw great potential in Schubert and encouraged him to try his best in all of his endeavors, but particularly music. He is quoted to have said of Schubert, He can do everything. He is a genius. End quote. (laughs) He goes on to elaborate how the young Schubert was already capable of writing complex and lovely-sounding songs, operas, quartets, and even masses at such a young age. But first... Schubert had other aspirations for himself than to be a full-time musician. Yes, rather than pursuing music full-time, he aspired to be a school teacher and just keep up with his music on the side. And that desire may have actually come from the fact that Schubert's father owned the local schoolhouse, so it was kind of the family business. Schubert, however, was a very lousy teacher. Apparently, he was incapable of being strict with his pupils, so order was never achieved in his classroom. He sounds like one of those cool teachers who just wants to be friends and be accepted (laughs) rather than actually get anything done. But already we could see that his career trajectory was changing. The same year that he began teaching is when he produced a musical work that really put him on the map, Gretchen and Her Spinning Wheel, which was based on the legend of Faust. Of course, the Faustian tale was a crowd favorite with the Germanic musical world and beyond, so it was an easy pick for a groundbreaking work. But he didn't stop there. Even when composing was just a side gig, he had a prolific output of songs, symphonies, sonatas, and so much more. And so finally, it became apparent that he could no longer pretend to be a full-time teacher, and instead he just dropped all of that and went into composing full-time. 
That's not to say that he never taught again. He still supplemented his income with private music lessons, notably from teaching the children of the famous music-loving Esterhazy court. And as a successful composer, Schubert was welcomed into the artsy scene. His best friend was the poet Franz von Schober, and he collaborated with one of history's most famous baritone singers, Johannes Vogel. And most importantly, his music was seen in high regard by Beethoven himself. Schubert was in fact among the friends who gathered at Beethoven's deathbed. And though there are a lot of fallacies around exactly what was said during Beethoven's drawn out death, his admiration for Schubert is passed down in the quote, Franz has my soul. Now, although Franz Schubert was a prolific and good composer, in his early days, few of the works he produced made it to public performance. Rather, his friends would gather for nightly poetry and music sessions, which revolved around Schubert's tunes. The friends dubbed themselves the Schubertians, and these little parties were the Schubertiads. I would love to have a series of friend dinner parties centered around me. <laughs> <laughs> the Allisonians. Or maybe we could all trade having different dinner parties so it wasn't so narcissistic. <laughs> so even though these gatherings were a bit self-centered, they likely didn't actually happen in Schubert's own home. He never really lived a wealthy life and apparently never even owned his own piano. As such, a majority of his works can be assumed to have been composed straight from his head rather than really hearing what they might sound like on a piano first. Counterintuitively, perhaps, it produced good results. His pensive nature and constant romanticism led to pieces such as his eighth unfinished symphony that is wrought with emotion, and contrasting works such as Di Forella, which means the trout, which is peppy and jubilant. Now, finally, in 1821, Schubert actually published his first work, which was a collection of songs. It was the perfect dose of Schubert for the general public. Songs could be readily learned and performed by almost anyone without needing a proper concert, and thus the word of Schubert's greatness was able to spread quickly. I just had a thought. Yes. This is the, like, this is the equivalent of Taylor Swift publishing an album, right? This is mm. Schubert's album. It's his first album. Okay. But instead of, ha but for the public to listen to it, instead of going and, you know, putting it in your CD player, you had to go learn it. You bought the Schubert, the new hot Schubert album, but then you <laughs> had to go learn it. I just think that's funny and fun. But sadly, all good things must come to an end. Unfortunately, Schubert's end was hastened by syphilitic disease complications. At the end of his life, he often felt restless and was advised by doctors to try and get exercise and get out to the country. That sounds like a lovely cure for anything. <laughs> <laughs> On one such voyage, he went to the grave of Haydn and it apparently brightened his spirits and slightly improved his health. However, he would soon go downhill rapidly. In one letter, he wrote that he had not been able to eat for 11 days. And a few days before his death in a hospital, he began raving about his room being unfamiliar and that he needed to see Beethoven, who had in fact passed away the year before in 1827. Schubert finally died at age 31 in 1828. 
His funeral was well attended by friends and family members. And those friends, still wanting to celebrate the life of this great composer, pulled together a concert of his works. The concert was a great success, so another one was put on as well. And finally, the gamut of compositions from this great composer began to get out to the world. The whole point of these concerts was to raise money to purchase a grand monument for Schubert's grave. This monument still stands on his grave, which is located as near to Beethoven's as could be achieved. Adorable. And so now on to our piece of the week, the Impromptu in E-flat major. This piece is part of the four impromptus that were written in 1827, so just a year before Schubert's death. As the word impromptu may suggest, it's meant to sound as though the pianist had just sat down at the keyboard and played an improvisatory solo. So let's listen in and see what Schubert thought such an improvisation might sound like. Now, although this is meant to sound like it had just been come up with on the spot, it actually has a very definitive ABA form with a coda. So this is the A section, and we will hear an exact repeat of in part near the end. Now it is a busy section to listen to. You may be tempted to listen to the treble voices. And that's not a bad place to start, so let's see what it's all about. First, it establishes the key of E-flat for us right away with a pickup on B-flat, which is the fifth. And then we jump into the busyness, but it's really not that bad. It's just a very fast E-flat major scale in triplets. What is ear-catching about it is that it obviously starts on the fifth and then a few measures later actually turns around on a lower fifth as well. The tonic E-flat actually falls on the third triplet of beat two, so it's not at all emphasized. However, the tonality is still established because the only other scale with this particular series of notes is C minor. But by starting on the B-flat fifth and going downward with the scale, that actually makes our ear anticipate the tonic E-flat. Now, the bass line actually simplifies the harmony for us because it conveniently has an E-flat on the downbeat, followed by the B-flat fifth again on beat two, so we're hearing a nice tonic chord right away. So all the trickery with the scales doesn't actually matter. But let's talk more about this melody. And maybe that nomenclature is up for debate already. Is this a melody or just the background harmonic structure? So the description of a melody from Berklee College of Music says that, quote, melody is a succession of pitches in rhythm and is, again, quote, usually the most memorable aspect of a song. And I think we could argue that both the treble and bass here are pitches in rhythms, and really depending on the part that you focus on, you may remember one part more than the other. But back to these pitches in rhythm, that rhythm is notably in 3-4 time, so it feels like a dance. Schubert establishes this dance feel by making sure that beat 1 is emphasized in every measure. Then beat 2 is emphasized as well, but the chords or notes are higher in pitch, then beat one, giving it a sense of lightness. In many dance styles, including the waltz, there is often a heavier step on beat one, with lighter movement on beat two. 
so the music mimics this desired movement precisely. Moving on through this first phrase, as we get to the two measures before the phrase's big cadence, we're moving through the standard 4, 5, 7 to 1. To signal this even better than just with the chords in the bass clef, the running triplets feature upward leaps of a fifth, which is the largest interval that has yet been heard in those triplets. And it's yet another little hiccup in the scale that catches our ears. The next time this cadence comes around, in order to change things up a bit, we only get the fifth leap on the four chord, but actually then get an upward turnaround on the fifth that allows the very next phrase to be played up an octave for some nice variation. Of course, to take the classical music mantra, when you must variate, modulate. And Schubert does just that. Here we have a quick little switch to E flat minor and then a trip around the circle of fifths with sequences. My saxophone teacher used to always tell me that sequencing was the key to good sounding jazz improv. And apparently, even in the early romantic era, a good sequence would give the effect of good improv as well. It's almost like Schubert knew what he was doing. To further muddy the harmonic waters, in the repeat of this minor phrase, we get some diminished chord arpeggios. Though they sound lovely and smooth in the performance, they make kind of a mess of the analysis. If we're dealing with E flat minor with six flats already and a diminished chord is adding even more flats, meaning to lower the pitches and therefore make the intervals diminish in size, we end up with a lot of double flats, and those are just obnoxious to look at. <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to look at them when you're just listening, though. Indeed. As we continue through the A section, it just gets more and more out of hand. After a quick recap of the original phrase, the triplets spend a lot of time in the higher octaves, and the bass clef keeps plodding away. However, after the treble has had enough of the high notes, it actually takes a dive down to the bass. Also, the waltz idea gets a little frantic here as well. Instead of the emphasis on beat one, there's now just a short eighth note on beat one to help de-emphasize it, and we actually hear accents on beat two. So it's a little syncopation for our improvisation. And this furious phrase ends with both hands playing an upward G flat major scale in unison and ending on a big G flat major chord. G-flat? <gasps> yes, that may seem surprising for what's coming next in the B section, but thanks to music theory, it's all okay. But before we explain that, let's just have you listen to this little transition. Alright, so what are these chords? 
as we said, we end the previous phrase on G flat major. The next section starts with a notated key change from three flats to two sharps. And the chord we hear is B minor. But coffee house. You may be yelling. G flat isn't part of B minor. Ah, uh, yes, we know. But remember one of Debussy's favorite things and harmonics. G flat is F sharp. And F sharp, guess what? That's the fifth of B minor. So the setup to the B section is actually mimicking the pickup to the A section. Just a standard five to one cadence. Wow. <laughs> it really does make sense. Thanks, music theory. So, of course, with that transition, we've made it into the B section. This section still keeps the waltz-like feeling with the emphasis on beat one, as well as upward motion on beat two. The melody, however, is played in both the treble and bass clef this time, with the primary focus actually being in the treble. And there aren't the same constant running triplets, but rather just an upward group on beat two that is played by the inner fingers of the right treble clef hand. There is also a fun exchange in this measure where the inner fingers are playing eighth notes on just the upbeats while the outer fingers have quarter note contrary motion. It's fun to listen to each individual note fitting into the overall sound. Something else that Schubert explores in the B section that wasn't as prominent in the A section is dynamic contrast. He frequently has a measure of double sforzando followed by pianissimo. he does want to reference back to the A section and does that through running triplets at the end of phrases. Then as we're getting back out of the B section, Schubert begins to prepare a modulation. First, he sets up a sort of mini coda that's just for the B section. Now recall a coda uses familiar material but doesn't really develop it, just kind of emphasizes the tonic with it. We first hear that in these measures, where the same chords and triplet runs are repeated three measures in a row with an emphasis on a repeated B in the treble. Then the pattern actually speeds up in the next two measures. All throughout these measures, our chord of interest is of course B minor. Through a simple chromatic half step downward, this B minor gets flats added. Now we're tricked into thinking this is a full sequence of the B minor passage that came before, as there are repeated B flats in the treble now. However, the chords are actually inverted in such a way that it's not a direct transposition to B flat minor, but rather an E flat minor chord emphasizing its fifth, which happens to be B flat. And quietly, the running triplets return over a diminished chord, and we're able to finally resolve back to E flat major without any strife. And this A section now starts with a direct repeat of the first time we heard it. 
we get a similar exploration of the higher reaches of the keyboard and some more fun diminished harmonies as we work our way through this running triplet section once again. To some extent, it doesn't really matter what the exact scale or key is as all the notes just run together and accidentals may or may not change in each measure. Really, Schubert is just going for the flashy and showy effect or the constant motion. The second A section ends similarly to our first A section with an upward scale from both hands followed by G flat major chords. And with that, we enter the coda. This more closely mimics the B section with the upward triplets only on beat two. However, there is no key change this time, just accidentals, but this still puts us in B minor. This time though, Schubert repeats the B minor phrase up an octave rather than developing it like he did in the actual B section. And then again, higher. But that's all to allow for grand sweeping downward triplets, all in E flat minor rather than E flat major. It's an interesting choice to start a piece in a major key and end it in the parallel minor, but perhaps that's just part of the improvisatory nature of the piece. Looking at the whole four impromptus that are published within this collection though, the next piece after this one is actually in G flat major, and as we discussed, G flat major and E flat minor are relative keys, so it actually helps the whole collection flow nicely together as a whole. So this, of course, was a little confection of a piece. Um, hopefully you have listened to our previous episode about Schubert in episode 85 with another one of these impromptus. In fact, I believe it was the G flat major that we just referenced, if I'm oh, remembering so correctly. So this podcast will flow very nicely into the full collection. <laughs> um, but as you can tell, you know, he's maybe one of the more forgotten composers. I feel like a He's not one of like the top people that, you know, the standard person on the street's gonna know. But he wrote, as we were talking about earlier, these little little bits and collections that were easily distributed around. And I think that kind of gives him more of a, a staying power for just like the general classical listening audience. Maybe not so much the people on the street, but you know, those who like classical, he's got a lot to offer, a lot of different little experiments and things that he tried. And I think that's maybe sometimes better than like always having to listen to these huge symphonies that, you know, a lot of the other composers really wanted to put out all the time. And he did write symphonies. Yes. You have your pick then. Small works are big works. Exactly. He's He's got a huge catalog um, and hopefully... Uh, hopefully in these two episodes that we've done about him so far. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Is he going to be the new Bach? Or are we going to have ten episodes about Schubert now? <laughs> oh, goodness. Hopefully not in a row. Um, <laughs> hopefully there's something in there for you. And if there is, and if you think there's something in Schubert's catalog, or your friends, or your family, or your colleagues, then you can or share... Or even the people on the street. Or... Even the people on the... You know what? Especially the people on the street. Share Schubert with them today. 
and share the coffee house as well. And while you're at it, why don't you drop a review on Spotify, Iton, Itons, iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that fine podcasts are sold. The podcast is free. <laughs> the podcast is free, but it's sold for time. Until next time on the coffee house, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The impromptu in E-flat was performed by Chiara Bertoglio. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook at The Coffee House Classical Podcast and Instagram at Podcast Coffee House. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.